What can we do to fight back against big pharma and the compromised medical industry? We can become healthy and break free from the perpetual cycle of being poisoned by criminal organizations like most pharmaceutical companies. Come check out what may be the most powerful antioxidant known to man, C60 Purple Power. The benefits of C60 have been personally outstanding. I use it every day and I feel incredible. I have tons of energy, I sleep great, and I haven't even come down with a cold since I started using C60 over two years ago. You can even get C60 for your pets. Do your own research, click the link in the description, and check out their website. If you order from that link or use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10, you get 10% off your order plus free shipping. What is your health worth to you? Back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Tony Brasunas. First, a couple of announcements. Check out our website, ForbiddenKnowledge.News. This is also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network. You'll find some of your favorite podcasts from our community featured there, and we'll be adding some new ones very soon. Come check that out. Forbidden Knowledge News is always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. Rockfin is where you get our premium content. You also get all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin for only $10 a month, and there's hundreds of amazing creators on Rockfin. You can also create a free account, get access to everyone's free content, including all our regular shows. Just go to rokfin.com slash fknplus, that's rockfin.com slash fknplus to sign up now, or click the link in the description. Finally, if you would like to help in any way with a donation for the documentary production, anything is greatly appreciated, you can go to supportfkn.com or we have a PayPal link right in the description. Today I want to welcome Tony Brasunas. He is an independent journalist and author of Red, White, and Blind, The Truth About Censorship in America and the Rise of Independent Media. Tony, welcome. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yes, of course, man. This is going to be great. I've been looking forward to this. Your book explores critical information about the phenomenon we're currently witnessing, not only cancel culture, but media distortion and disinformation, uh, as well as the upside to the corruption, which is really an unprecedented rise of independent media and content creators that have kind of risen up to, to combat against the censorship. So we live in very interesting and critical times, I believe. Um, but this is your first time on. Let's start with a little bit about your background and what brought you to write the book. 
Sure. Um, so maybe we could start in 2016. It's probably a good place to start, although I could go back even further if you want to know more about me. But um, 2016, I was writing for Huffington Post uh, covering the Democratic uh, the Democratic primary between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Uh, most of us will remember that event. Um, and it was going fine. I was, I was covering it from uh, the Bernie Sanders perspective, and there were not a lot of people writing from that perspective. It was sort of the lesser favored perspective in the, in the mainstream media. So I had a lot of articles that got a lot of uh, traction, uh, 50,000 views, 100,000 views sometimes. Um, it's going really well. I even occasionally write about controversial topics. I wrote about um, possibilities of election fraud in the primaries in California and Arizona and New York. Um, that was fine. I didn't hear anything from editorial or anything like that. But it was when I wrote an article uh, at the very end, just, just leading into the convention, um, about not trying to assert that Hillary Clinton was not trustworthy, but just explaining some of the reasons that it might be better since Trump had at that point won the nomination on the Republican side and Bernie was polling better against Trump uh, nationally. I just sort of advocated going to the convention for nominating Bernie Sanders because of trust issues, that, that independents in particular trusted Bernie Sanders more than Hillary Clinton, and that that could be the swaying, deciding issue in the election. And so I thought it was a fairly reasonable argument. Um, and I wrote the article, I published it. Um, it was like 6 or 7 p.m. I looked at it, it had you know, 10,000, 20,000 views as I went to bed. Woke up the next morning and it was gone. I had just been taken down and uh, it was a very interesting experience, something I'd heard about, but hadn't actually experienced and uh, very interesting experience because then I, I sort of saw bef before my own eyes, the birth of, or the maturation of independent media because people were sharing the story on their own sort of smaller sites on Reddit's subreddits and, you know, all over the internet, people were like, where did Tony Persunis's article go? Why can't I find it? Oh, here it is. So I grabbed it and posted it on medium.com and put it, uh, a link to that on Twitter, got on the plane, went to the convention in Philadelphia. And um, when I got there, I realized it had become my most popular article I'd written all year. Um, so it's just a really interesting, it was really interesting experience. So, so that happened and I witnessed a lot, quite a bit up close at the convention in Philadelphia. We can get into that if you're interested. But to sort of get into the book where Red, White, and Blind comes from, it sort of grew out of that. And I witnessing censorship firsthand, I decided in 2019 to write a book about media distortion, media disinformation. I started studying it. I had the firsthand experience. And then halfway through writing the book, the whole pandemic happened and it was there was even more. And suddenly censorship went from occasionally rare things that like it struck uh, Alex Jones and a few other people to suddenly something that was just cutting across the political spectrum. So ever since, you know, halfway through writing the book, it's just become a much, much more observable phenomenon that we're really witnessing a lot of distortion, deception, censorship, disinformation, in the media, and at the same time, the rise of shows like yours shows independent media, people like me writing books outside of the mainstream, and we're starting to take over the narrative. So it's a really interesting time. That's what the book covers. That's great, man. And this is like it, like you said, it's not really a slow rolling phenomenon. Uh, around 2016 is when I started noticing it too. Uh, it seemed that they were kind of picking and choosing certain people to to start out with, but now since 2020 and COVID, it has taken off, and it seems like this uh, this this 
cancel culture and all the agendas that are surrounding it are are pretty much unstoppable when it comes to our mainstream media. Uh, you said you witnessed firsthand some censorship at a convention. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I mean, I witnessed firsthand myself being censored, so that was pretty firsthand. It'd be hard to be more firsthand than that. Um, but then I also noticed at the convention um, that so one of the things that happened there were um, th- th- this was what I call in the book narrative management, where basically what what goes on is the people in power. Let's let's say the political parties, uh, some of the largest corporations, some of the intelligence agencies um, come up with news narratives and we can get into where they originate. But there, there'll be a news narrative such as, yeah, like the covid pandemic is very dangerous and you have to stay inside or something like that. And then things, you know, stories sort of grow out from that. Um, in this case, the, the narrative at the time was that, you know, the Democratic Party is all getting behind Hillary Clinton for the nomination. And we want, you know, there, there's a single unity. And it wasn't true at all on the ground. Um, and one of the things I witnessed was um, they were actually employing noise machines inside of the convention specifically and strategically to drown out the Bernie Sanders supporters during the convention. So that on TV, it would sound like everybody was applauding when actually lots of people were booing at times. But it got even worse than that. Each uh, nominee gets to send two large groups of people to the convention. One of the official delegates, which are actually elected in each precinct around the country, and the other is what's called the volunteers, who are not just volunteers, they tend to be very high visibility individuals in their local community that worked very hard for that candidate. So you have these two groups coming. So, so the Clinton group sent a huge number of delegates and a huge number of volunteers, and they're going to be in the convention hall representing their candidate, applauding, doing all of that. And Bernie Sanders had the same groups, right? And it was fairly close distribution. I mean, there was about Hillary Clinton had taken 54% of the delegates, the, the elected delegates, and, and Bernie Sanders had 46%. So it was 54, 46, fairly even split. Um, but on the day, on the third day of the convention, they decided to ban all of Bernie Sanders volunteers. So basically they took half of his delegate delegation and said, you're not going to be able to get into the convention anymore. And this was nowhere on corporate media. Nobody covered it. So somebody came out and, and told me I was just outside in this like sort of grassy area outside where there's a lot of sort of alternative media. And I put it on a tweet and it was this breaking news suddenly that, you know, <laughs> nobody had heard about. So, yeah, it was just things like that were being censored, that certain perspectives were being censored, but they were still able to get out on independent media. And I think we've just seen that phenomenon accelerate and accelerate over the last, uh, let's say, five years, five, six years. We have. It's incredible. And I think it's important for people to understand a lot of things that might be happening behind the scenes with this. Uh, Let's get a synopsis of the book, Red, White and Blind, The Truth About Censorship in America. Sure. So, yes, I mean, the the subtitle explains it fairly well. We're we're looking at censorship, disinformation and um, uh, propaganda in the U.S. media. And so the main thing we look at, the the book starts by just really looking at a case like the Jeffrey Epstein story. Right. So how is it that the Jeffrey how is it that this basically a pedophilia ring involving thousands, certainly hundreds, probably thousands of girls uh, was able to go for two decades at the very apex of Western political system and was essentially unreported in the media um, until it finally blew open in in 2019. But, you know, he had already had a conviction of, of, uh, although he got a sweetheart deal, but he had a conviction of of, uh, soliciting underage 
I guess it's called soliciting underage prostitution. I'm not sure what the specific name, but he had a conviction already in 2008. So, I mean, you know, it, it went on for decades. And why is that, right? Why is, what what is manipulating the media to protect someone like Jeffrey Epstein, right? So that's, so we look at that. Then we move on. So we start with sort of stories in the book. Then we look at the origin of COVID and, and why was it that, you know, at the beginning of SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV-2, the COVID pandemic, you were not allowed to even speculate, even consider that it could have come out of a lab that was is the leading, you know, the leading lab experimenting with viruses in China that's just down the street from where they're saying it emerged in a wet market. It's a totally legitimate theory. At this point, we know it's probably the truth that that is where it originated. But why was that story completely censored and completely you were unable to discuss it for more than a year? Um, and then we look at several more stories, right? Like the Biden laptop story. And why was that censored uh, at the New York Post? And so it starts with that. We kind of want to look at these stories because the underlying idea is to try to understand. I think we all have a sense that the media is distorted and that, you know, but a lot of us have a sense, oh, it's the other side is trying to keep us down. But the truth is, right, both sides think that. So how is it possible that both sides think that the other side has the upper hand of the media? And so I wanted to explore that. I want to understand where the censorship and manipulation is coming from. And it turns out it's not coming from like the other side is trying to keep you down. There's a whole other set of agendas that aren't really the Republican side or the Democrat side that want to manage the narrative for particular powerful interests. And so that's uh, that's where the book goes. Um, a couple other things. I mean, we, we, we go way back in history. We go back to the beginning of propaganda in the 1920s. And then we even go back to sort of the founding of this country and what the vision of a free press is for, why we have a free press and why it's so essential for all Americans to realize that censorship is anathema to our system, both in democracy and in science. Because if we allow censorship to take root, it will it will always eventually come for you. Even if right now you think, oh, they're just censoring the people I don't like, so I don't care. You need to take a principled stand and realize that free speech is not protecting speech that you support. Everybody supports speech that they support. Free speech is supporting speech that you do not like, that you despise, that you find disgusting. As long as it doesn't incite violence or libelously attack your character, that free speech needs to endure. So that's sort of where I end. And then I go a little bit into this new enlightenment that I, I actually see we are in a rebirth, getting back to that original vision of the free press, where there's hundreds, thousands of voices, and they're all allowed to speak, and democracy and science can, can flourish because all voices are allowed, the best voices will win out. How and why do you think we got to this point? And did you think we would get here as quickly as we did? Uh, we spoke earlier briefly about uh, since COVID started, uh, all the narratives kind of stemming out from that, uh, how censorship ramped up from there and the attacks went on from independent content creators and YouTube and just deleting people's stuff. What do you think are the underlying reasons for this and how do you think it, it got to this point so quickly? So do, I just want to clarify your question. I mean, it's like since 2016 to 2020, why did well, it ramp since, up? Well, since the, the, you know... Uh, you know, they, there, there's plenty of, I'm sure, underlying reasons and agendas why they started ramping up censorship, even starting in 2016. What is your ideas behind of why they're doing this? That's a great question. I mean, I think I would take two. I would take I would take at it from two sides. I think the main reason that it's ramping up is because they're in a vicious cycle. 
right? Where because, in, so the internet is a invention along the lines of the printing press that Gutenberg invented, right? The movable printing press launched the enlightenment in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. And that enlightenment where suddenly everybody, not everybody, but many, many, many more people could read, could write, could share their ideas. You know, suddenly we, it, it found it was the birth of the rebirth of science, the Renaissance, all of this. And that eventually toppled the power centers of feudalism and the Catholic church. Right. And so we're in the beginning of that happening. Now the internet is doing the same thing. Suddenly you or I can have an ex a direct experience outdoors or at a news event and we can share it with millions of people instantaneously. That's a revolution that has never happened before. And what that's doing, we're still in the early phases, even though the internet's been around for, you could say 20 or 25 years, we're in the early phases of how that is, in, how that is affecting the power structures and how that's specifically affecting how we know what is going on in the world, right? Like the Catholic church and feudalism, it was this top-down distribution of information. We know the truth, the earth is in the center of the galaxy, God created everything, if you say anything different, we're going to burn you at the stake or put you on the rack, right? Top-down distribution of information. We almost got back to that, you know? I mean, with, with media deregulation that happened in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, then particularly 1990s, we got to the point in this country where there are only five, six giant corporations that own all of the distribution of news. We're back basically to this top-down distribution of information that the power centers want. But the internet and independent news is breaking that apart. And so the reason they're ramping up censorship is because they're, they're in this vicious cycle. They're trying to cling to their power over the narrative. They're trying to cling to that power, but it's, it's a vicious cycle because the more they try to cling to it, the more they censor, the more they distort, the more of us go and found our own independent news, the more of us go on independent news, have conversations like this one. So I think it's going to continue. We're in, the, we're in the death throes of these giant media corporations. It may go on for another five, 10 years but they're going to continue to push harder and censor more. And I'm going to be called names. You're going to be called names because, you know, the, the word used to be the heretic or the blasphemer, right? Was, was the word of you spoke out of turn. If you said, well, I think the sun might be the center of the galaxy. Yeah, you're a blasphemer, you're a heretic. Now it's conspiracy theorist, right? Or it's anti-vaxxer, it's, you know, whatever it is, there's, there's these labels that are attached to people that are thinking outside of the narrative. And that will continue. But I think we're in the death throes and I'm optimistic about it, although things could go any which way, but I, I'm optimistic about where it's going. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. Um, I hope that we can emerge victorious when it comes to independent media. Uh, how far do you think they can go? I have concerns about podcasting. I know they haven't really attacked that as much as other platforms, but they're starting to. They're starting to take a, a much closer look at things and put uh, warning labels and all this stuff, and I think that this may be the next avenue that they start attacking because it's one of the, the, the largest avenues uh, to get to, for, for people to get their information right now. What do you think about that? Well, certainly it's very concerning, and um, you know, I'm, I'm not always optimistic about it. I, it. It certainly could go a different way. We could go down an Orwellian path where we end up with just, you know, even more of a single source of top-down distribution of information. That's it's not just scary. It's, it's sort of would be the end of Western civilization, right? It'd be the, the end of this idea of the enlightenment of individual freedom of individual rights of free speech of free assembly of free press. All of that stuff is at stake for sure. And censorship, you know, censorship often works, you know, and sometimes it doesn't like I talked about my article on how, because of the censorship, you have this Barbara Streisand effect. I talk about where like, I don't know if you know the story, but Barbara Streisand had a photo of her, 
giant house off the coast of, I think in Malibu or something. And mm-hmm. she, and a few, it had been shared a little bit. And some people were saying, how come you have such a big house if you're talking about, you know, living simply. And so rather than just let it go, she tried, she went after those people and she went after the photo and she tried to have it censored. But, you know, a photo on the internet is going to be shared a million ways by Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't do it. And the fact that she pushed on it, many more people heard about it. And then the news covered it. And everybody's like, why is Barbara Streisand trying to, you know, trying to censor a photo? And so millions of people who would never have cared about the house suddenly saw, oh, Barbara Streisand has a really big house. What a, what a hypocrite, you know? So that's, that's the Barbara Streisand effect. So sometimes censorship has that effect where it actually makes... It, it, it triggers our innate our innate desire to know the truth, our innate desire not to be fooled, which is a very strong instinct for us. Even though we have another strong instinct not to be uh, to fit in with the crowd, we have this instinct to know the truth, and the Barbara Streisand effect triggers that, and it's very good and very healthy for our democracy and science that we have that instinct that we want to know things. So sometimes censorship backfires and it makes people more popular. I think you could say that happened with Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, sometimes censorship works. And we have to be honest, sometimes somebody's censored and they're gone and nobody knows and nobody heard. And, and so, yeah, I can't I can't say for sure. I know where it's going to go. I think what we have to do is, you know, continue to support independent media, continue to make independent media, exercise your free speech. You know, we only have rights that we exercise. Um, those are the things that I would say uh, are our best defense. Now, there's certain stories and agendas and uh, ideas and occurrences that are being distorted and lied about more than others through our mainstream media over the years. Of course, we have the whole COVID narrative and everything surrounding that. What are some of the other things that you're noticing that is being uh, heavily distorted or or censored uh, from our media? Oh, boy. Well, there's quite a few, right? I mean, I think you could say... So I start the book with um, with Jeffrey Epstein and the, the origin of COVID, I think, which are very obvious cases. I talk a little bit about some of the stuff that happened uh, with the the Trump uh, campaign right before the election with the censorship of the Biden laptop and the Afghan bounties. Remember that story? The New York Times and the Washington yes. Post swore was true and turned out it was completely made up, uh, was not true. You know, so there's those. Um, I also talk quite a bit about some other things in the book. I go into, um, you know, the Iraq wars and the weapons of mass distraction, I call it. Um, But in terms of today, yeah, I mean, I think that the whole pandemic, I think we saw a a huge amount of distortion in the news and it's still going on today. Um, You see a lot of distortion around uh, masks and vaccines and lockdowns. A lot of that stuff was uh, the news was heavily manipulated in one particular direction. Um, the Ukraine war. Wow. I, I, I think the Ukraine war, and it, it happened just after I was finishing the book. So I, I don't get anything quite about the Ukraine war into the book, but um, there's a little bit about it in there. But I think, you know, I studied, you know, the start of the Vietnam war, the start of the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war, and those were all fairly uh, deceptive. But this one, I, I can't remember a time where there was more control of the media. And if you said anything that was at all, um, you know, maybe both sides shouldn't, there shouldn't be a war and both sides have some role to play in this. You are just absolutely considered a crazy person. Um, and I don't know where the anti-war movement went. It seemed to just evaporate. So that one's been really interesting. Um, and, you know, even for just saying what I said, somebody's be like, oh, look, look at this Putin supporter. You know, it's like, no, I'm not, I have nothing. I have no reason to support Putin. I don't like the guy. I don't think there should be a war. And I don't think that Russia is doing the right thing, but 
Anyway, um, do you want me to give a few more examples or yeah, did you sure, want to dive sure, into any sure, of those? Sure. Sure. Um, sure. So let's see. Uh, I think there's a really interesting sort of subtext going on right now around this idea of the great reset, mm. right? Where um, it first kind of came on, it was this considered this huge conspiracy theory. What are you talking about? The great reset. But little by little, it sort of comes out into the mainstream media like, oh, yeah, the World Economic Forum did release this thing where you'll own nothing and be happy. And that's sort of their their agenda. But it's, it's all just good sustainability ideas. But then little by little, people are starting to say, I'm not so sure that's a good, any part of that's a good idea. Um, and there's still a lot of media distortion around that. And when it's when it comes out, you still see that uh, if it appears in The New York Times or an NPR or even Fox uh, or even um you know the washington post it's it's fairly heavily distorted and if you want to know what's going on with that you have to you have to move into independent media and then what i talk about in the book is because independent media is it's no guarantee that if you go to independent media you're going to get the truth independent media can also be very deceptive the difference with independent media is there's two great differences for independent media the first is that your brain will approach it a little differently you're not going to approach it like this is the truth you're going to approach it like, okay, this is one perspective. And that's a very healthy thing for your brain when you're when you're taking in news or taking in people's reporting and analysis. You're like, okay, here's one opinion. It triggers the part of the brain that's critical and that thinks for itself. And that's a really important part. The other thing that's good about independent media and why I talk about it in the book a lot is, <clears throat> if not the savior, it's a, it's a very salutary force, is that um, I distinguish in the book different kinds of bias. There's nefarious bias systemic bias and innocent bias. And really briefly, so nefarious bias is the kind of the stuff that we think about, maybe that we think is going on more than it is, but some people think it's not going on at all. It's it's actual intelligence agents, Operation Mockingbird kind of stuff, intelligence agents directly manipulating the news or placing people at news organizations that are going to editorialize in favor. So that's, that happens. Even more prevalent though is what I call systemic bias, which is the bias that happens if, if your organization you know, is owned if, you know, for a while MSNBC, right, was owned by Comcast um, or I'm sorry, it was owned by GE before Comcast and GE was making a lot of weapons that were being sold in Iraq. And so you'd say, okay, so the fact that MSNBC is firing all of their anti-war journalists, it's not just nefarious bias. There's a systemic bias where they're, they're interested in the, in the interests of their parent corporation um, and they want this war to go on. So some of the systemic bias, uh, is more prevalent than the nefarious bias, but it's also a problem. And then you have innocent bias, which is just bias, like based on who I am, how I grew up, how much you know money I have, my race, my class, my gender, sexual orientation, all that stuff. I have my own biases, right? That, that are going to inform how I look at things. So nefarious bias and systemic bias are all throughout the corporate media. They also have innocent bias, but independent media, this is the other advantage of independent media, is generally there's little or no nefarious bias or systemic bias in independent media. You do have to be aware of uh, innocent bias, right? You have your biases, I have mine. If all I do is go to independent media and, and watch the same kind of people talking about the same kind of things, I'm gonna eventually be deceived into believing that's the only viewpoint. Mm. But you're not gonna be deliberately deceived by nefarious forces and you're not likely to have systemic, like there's probably not, and I don't know how you're running your show, you're probably not running your show based on some like parent corporation who's owned by another parent corporation who has particular interests of what you say or you don't say, right? 
pretty sure that's not the case, no. right? So it's like you have your own innocent biases, but you're not going to have those other kinds of biases. So that, that's why I think in, uh, independent media is such a great thing to bring into your media diet. Definitely. And I want to get more into aspects of uh, independent media and what's happening now. But first, I want to get your take on some of the other agendas that are uh, undoubtedly unfolding or uh being attempted to be shoved in our faces, some of the woke agendas, the World Economic Forum agendas that you briefly mentioned, like uh, owning nothing, be happy, uh, no more private vehicle ownership, eating bugs, uh, and then the other side of it, which has seemed to be a, a transhuman agenda, um, a, um, a technocratic agenda, along with social credit system, and normalization of mental illness that goes along with all of that. How, how do you feel about what's going on with all this well you just uh you just opened a big uh pandora's box there let me let me let me take one or two so um what i do in the book is i i identify that there is right there is a war going on for our minds right and it's been sort of a cliche for a couple of decades but that's because it's true what we think what we fear what we hope for uh if you can control that that's more valuable than money. That's more valuable than owning the property because you can then, you can predict the future. You can control the future. If I know what you fear and what you long for, I have a tremendous amount of power over you, right? So there is a war on for our minds. There is a war to control that narrative. There's a war to control what, because if you control the narrative, you can control those things. And so who's fighting this war, right? This is one of the things, these things we wanna understand. Who, who are the, what are the different sides? And I don't get into the book into like trying to call out specific names and specific people. I find it um, too much of a distraction and I, I didn't want to get into that, but I do take a step back and say, okay, we can certainly sit back and identify there are these forces. And I use the words progressive, conservative, and reactionary, and not in the sense that they're connected to the parties, right? Progressives does not mean you're a Democrat, conservative does not mean you're Republican. These words are misused. Basically, progressive, I use the word progressive to mean progressing the distribution of wealth and power more broadly, right? And, and if you look at the last 1,000 years, sort of since Magna Carta, which is 1,000 years ago, um, or eight, 900 years ago, um, that was the beginning, you'd say, of a real huge progressive arc we've been on, which is basically saying we're not going to have feudalism, or there's going to be, there was still feudalism for a while, but we're not going to just have these lords, we're going to have a written system, written set of laws, and then you could take that through the Enlightenment. I talked about that earlier. You take that through the revolutions in France and in, in this country and other places. We've been on this great progressive arc of basically toppling churches to some extent, at least the Rome, you know, the, the Catholic Church's control on power, feudalism control on power. We've moved into democracy. We have this amazing document in this country, the Constitution, that was, you know, is, is still relatively, I think it's unparalleled in the world. Other countries have constitutions, but not, not with all the rights that ours includes. And so we've been in this great progressive trajectory. So that's so the progressive energy is this instinct to, to share wealth and power more broadly. Then you have the reactionary agenda, which is to concentrate wealth and power more narrowly. Reactionaries want fewer people to have the wealth and power, and they want those few people to have more and more. Conservative is the center force. It sort of wants things to stay the same. So if you have a, if you have a real strong progressive push, conservatives might start to gravitate towards the reactionaries. If you have a real reactionary push, then conservatives will start to move towards the progressives, right? So what we're seeing right now is we're seeing this war play out. We're seeing the next chapter. 
where the internet and technology has this great potential to distribute wealth and power. The fact that you and I are having this conversation, we have more power than we would have before if I would have had to walk to find you to talk to you, right? We have more power with our, with our thoughts. At the same time, yes, there is something going on with these groups like the World, the World Economic Forum and some of the other groups that are reactionary forces. There was a very clear evidence of reactionary energy during the pandemic of wanting to centralize power more narrowly and more broadly. Huge upward wealth of, uh, huge upward transfer of wealth. You know, when you can lock people up in their homes and tell them they can't work, tell them they have to close down their businesses, you know, whether you think that helped with, you know, the spread of the virus or not, and it didn't very much, we could get into that. It certainly transferred a lot of wealth and power. So, yes, yeah, so we do see there, there's a, a reactionary push, and that is happening because I would say the internet both enables greater progressivism, but it also enables you know, an Orwellian system. I mean, before you had the technology of surveillance, before you had the technology of, I mean, cryptocurrency we could get into really cuts both ways. Cryptocurrency can be a fabulous transfer of power down to people where we control the, our own creation of currency. It's an amazing power. It can also be used for surveillance to basically monitor every single transaction. So I, I'm giving you a long-winded answer, but I wanted to really get into this sort of the nuances of how I see it. That is going on. There is a war right now between what I call the centralization and the decentralization. And those are long words, so they're not as sexy, but that's, I think there's the best words to, to, to sort of describe how I see it going on right now. Well, how much of this, I guess, censorship narrative is being pushed by that, that entity of, or these entities like the World Economic Forum and things of that nature? It seems like they have a pretty big hand in it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's why I talk about, I distinguish nefarious bias from systemic bias. Some of the censorship and propaganda is directly like nefarious bias. Like there's actually people planted doing that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Time Magazine and at one point Newsweek, we learned that they actually had CIA people on the editorial board who are actually like deciding, you know, writing, they're the ones writing the headlines, maybe not the new articles. They're the ones editing the articles. That has definitely gone on in this country and there's no reason to believe it's not going on now. So that's happening. But that's not, I don't think that's the largest thing. The largest thing is systemic bias, which is where you might not know, right? You might talk to somebody who works at um, the Wall Street Journal or at uh, you know, NBC News, and they don't necessarily know that they're participating in censorship or propaganda. They just know that if I write about this article from this perspective, I get promoted and I get a bonus and I can take my kids uh, to you know, Disney World. If I write about this perspective from this thing, I might lose my job or I'll get passed over for promotion. Yeah. And people are smart. People want to be, you know, be successful. So they, they internalize this stuff and they think, OK, I watched, you know, my buddy Fred talk about this from this perspective. And then, you know, six months later, he was out of his job. I watched Shirley do it from this perspective. And now she's, you know, she's my boss now. Yeah. You know, so those kinds of things are very, very powerful and they, they control people's minds in a much more subtle way. Um but you have, and I even in the book distinguish systemic bias into five separate filters where you have the interests of advertisers, you have the interests of ownership, you have, um, you want to avoid uh, outcry and flack and, and, and controversy. So there's these separate little filters that act from systemic bias. That's going on. But I think to get to your point is like, how do we know to what extent somebody like, you know, the people like Klaus Schwab or somebody mm-hmm. like that at the World Economic Forum are directly manipulating news. Right. And, you know, it, it's hard to know for sure. To some extent, it is going on. I mean, we, we now have leaked 
memos from Tony Fauci, right? From Anthony Fauci saying, and Francis Collins uh, during the, um, I don't know if you followed the Great Barrington Declaration, but it was this, um, so the Great Barrington Declaration was fairly early on in the pandemic. Uh, maybe let's say it was August of 2020, something like that, maybe even a little earlier, where you had this whole alternative group of doctors get together and say, look, we know how we can treat this and we can end this pandemic in a very different way if we basically identify this virus as much more dangerous to the elderly. It doesn't really hurt young people. It's not very dangerous. What is dangerous to the young people and the middle-aged people is that we're destroying the economy. What we should do, and they had, and they call it, it was, it was called um, uh, focus protection. That's what they call it, focus protection. It was this idea you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an epidemiologist, but it, it made a lot of sense. And there were thousands of people signed on to it. It was this whole like global push towards a more sensible or at least, you know, a less draconian, let's say, focus uh, approach to, to, the, to the pandemic. And what happened with that, you know, we now know that Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci at the NIH were behind the scenes back channeling saying, how did this uh, Barrington, Great Barrington Declaration get out? Who's taking it down? We need, it was something like, we need a devastating takedown published in a newspaper immediately. Who's working on this, right? Yeah. So they weren't, they weren't interested in science. They weren't saying, I mean, science would be, you know, let's, let's put our best people on this Great Barrington Declaration and see if it makes more sense than, you know, pushing for the vaccine and mass. Let, maybe it's a better approach. You know, let's have science decide. Let, let's do some like objective data-based you know, experimentation with this. No, that wasn't what was going on, right? Yeah. So, you know, so yes, to some extent, there were people behind the scenes trying to handicap science. That happened with the Great Barrington Declaration. We saw it with the, or the, the uh, origin of COVID and trying to figure out where the virus came from, which would be very, very helpful to know early on where the virus originated. That certainly helps knowing how to treat it, where it's likely to go, how it's gonna evolve, is a vaccine gonna be successful? you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we weren't allowed to, to study that stuff either. So I don't know if I'm answering your question directly. No, that um, was perfect. Do you want to learn how to remote view? Now is your chance. The International Remote Viewing Association is offering eight weeks of remote viewing classes instructed by my friend, Michelle Freed. Don't miss this once in a lifetime opportunity Starting Saturday, September 3rd, 10 a.m. Pacific. The course is only $150. And for members of the IRVA, it's only $110. Just visit irva.org slash events slash registration to sign up now. Yeah. Thanks. How involved do you think you kind of touched on this a little bit, but how involved do you think three-letter agencies like the CIA and other uh, agencies are actually uh, actively uh, manipulating or involved with manipulating the news or even um, involvement with Hollywood and in, in narrative with uh, movie scripts and things of that nature? Yeah, I touch on that really well. So the CIA's interaction with the media, I, I spent a whole chapter on that for sure. Yeah. We can get to that. In terms of specific things like uh, Hollywood. And I mean, we do have, we do have some data that like Bill Gates, uh, had, uh, things he's funded, um, have manipulated like plots in TV shows. Like we want the plot of this TV show to go a little differently. Um, 
And yes, there certainly there is plenty of plenty on the record of the military manipulating movie scripts um, or like basically funding the development of movies um, saying you, you can make this movie and you can make it however you want as long as this thing happens and one of the characters says this about that, you know. Um, I don't get very much into that in the book. It is a, certainly an interesting topic, but I do spend a bit of time looking at like CIA, um, NSA, you know, Operation Mockingbird. I spend more the, the better part of a chapter on Operation Mockingbird because it's declassified. We knew it. We know what happened. It's, it's you know, the church committee was probably the greatest sort of public revelation about the secret ongoings of the CIA that we've ever had and maybe ever will have. I don't know if we'll have another another committee like that. It would be great to find out what's gone on over the last 30, 40 years. But that was in the early 70s, and that revealed what had happened over the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. And we know from that that certainly the CIA was was manipulating the media and placing, you know, they would they would do several things. They would um, they would take some of the best known uh, journalists, like news anchors, uh, writers at newspapers, have a meeting with them one on one, like over a beer somewhere, and be like, "Hey, you know, we know you're a great American. Uh, we want you to support the country. We want you to continue being great." You know, do you think you can, you know, occasionally talk about something from this perspective or that perspective? And it's interesting. I mean, we have there's there's record of, of some of these journalists just saying yes out of like sort of patriotic duty, like, oh, you're the CIA, like I want to help my government. Um, and then there's other kinds of things that are not quite as like, you know, I don't know if that's that's not innocent. I would call that nefarious bias, but where instead they actually place agents at newspapers and they managed to get I mean, they had they had an art. An agreement between the publisher of the New York Times, Salzberger at the time, and the head of the CIA. Uh, I think it's Alan Dulles. Uh, yeah. To, Alan yeah. Dulles. Or they were actually friends, and so they were clearly in. You know, they, they it really helped for for almost ten years. They would have agents going back and forth between the New York Times and um, CBS was this way as well. So you know, so then, so then you have uh, George W. Bo George H. W. Bush takes over the CIA um, in the late '70s, and he comes out and says, "We're not doing this anymore." You know, Church Committee, you know, showed us that we can't do this anymore. But in, I, I actually go into his memo, and in his memo, there's already several like little uh, loopholes where he says, "Like, we're not going to pay journalists anymore." But we welcome unpaid support, <laughs> so which is kind of a whole as a very big loophole. Yeah. And um, there's a couple other things where he talks about, you know, um, you know. So Operation Mockingbird, it wasn't just journalists; it was also clergy, and it was also, um, you know, movie people in the movies and stuff like that. And so he, he the the memo is very specific, and there's all these loopholes about who's who's being uh, pulled out. And then I go into the, the the end of that chapter. I go into all of this evidence, even though it hasn't been publicly revealed, why Operation Mockingbird or something like it is definitely continuing on. Um, there's a whole range. I, I get into 10 or 11 examples um, of oh, why. Man, I'd love to hear some of that. I'm sure my audience is very familiar with uh, Project Operation Mockingbird, but maybe you could uh, just give a brief synopsis for those that aren't familiar of what the whole project was about and maybe some of uh, some of those examples you were talking about. Sure. So, so basically, Operation Mockingbird um, was a CIA operation to uh, place or to manipulate the news, really. And the way they talked about it originally, and certainly a big part of it, was manipulating foreign-facing news, like manipulating the news in other countries. So they would definitely place Americans, 
and CIA agents in foreign news newspapers to manipulate how foreigners thought about the United States because it was during the Cold War and we wanted to you know we wanted people to think of the United States and capitalism as great and communism and the Soviets as evil. So so a lot of it was that. And so when people get on tr- to defend Operation Mockingbird, they usually focus on that. They're like, hey, man, it was the Cold War. We need to win, you know, any means necessary. Sure, we told some lies. And so that's, and we could get into that, like whether that's okay or not, if you're okay with propaganda and lies, uh, if it serves the right purpose, whether the means justify the ends and whatever, the ends justify the means. That's a separate conversation. But what they don't often talk about and what Operation Mockingbird or what the church committee revealed is it was also going on in this country. And that was specifically illegal. We had the smith Munt Act, which which forbade propaganda in the United States. And that was even the one of the reasons that, you know, in our propaganda in other countries, we would say the United States was better because we'd say in these countries, they have propaganda, you know, like in, in the Soviet Union and like the Eastern Bloc and, and China, it's all propaganda, whereas in the Western countries and, you know, the UK and France and the United States, there's no propaganda. So we're literally using that as our propaganda <laughs> when now we know that that wasn't true. So it's a really interesting, uh, it cuts both ways kind of thing there. But um, yeah, so that was Operation Mockingbird. Uh, it's now been fully declassified. We know what was going on. Um, even during the church committee, they didn't fully reveal it. They never fully revealed the number of agents or the number of journalists who were in it. Uh, we know it was at least 400 because of um, some great independent and some investigative journalism work. It was probably more than 400. It was possibly thousands. Um, we know that it happened domestically, even though originally they said it was only happening in foreign in foreign uh, news agencies. And it, it, it had three main avenues. It was, like I said, it was actually sort of uh, co-opting or paying uh, famous journalists to, to sort of manipulate the agenda. It was placing agents. And sometimes it was recruiting or like, like beginning level journalists. Like, let's say you were a fledgling journalist at the, I don't know where you're living, but let's say, you know, after I'm in California, let's say like the local little newspaper, I just started out. I might get a visit from a CIA agent like one day and just be like, Hey, you want to go out for lunch and be like, Hey, look, you can continue doing what you're doing. We're going to give you a little extra money on the side. At some point, you know, we might want you to help us out. And, uh, and so that happened as well. So that's Operation Mockingbird. That went on through the 70s. And then, it, and then supposedly it was, it was turned off, turned down, dialed back. Um, but the reasons that we are, that I'm certain, fairly certain that it continued or something like it is because we saw immediately lots of similar stories. So a couple of them I go into. Um, I go into this journalist uh, at uh, at the New York Times who wrote, um, his name is Steve, uh, Stone, I think. I, I don't have it right in front of me. He basically has a, ex, or has a confessional article in the New York Times where he says, yeah, you know, in like the late 70s, early 80s, I was approached by the CIA when I came back from Russia to like work for the CIA. And but I, I decided not to. And then, but then you look at the trajectory of his career and it's, it looks just like an Operation Mockingbird career. Like literally he then immediately rises really quickly. He works at the Baltimore Sun right out of the box. And then he, um, and he's, and he's covering things like intelligence agencies and he's writing about like highly controversial topics. Then he gets a job at the New York Times and continues. And even to this day, he's like one of the lead, I think he's still there. One of the lead guys writing about Russia Gate and the Russia stuff. So he's literally been covering intelligence agencies and the CIA and those topics ever since that time. But he says, yeah, they approached me and they wanted me to work for them. But I said, no, it's like, well, I'm not so sure about that. Um, then you have 
there's there's a dozen examples I have. One one really interesting case is um, Anderson Cooper. You know where he uh, he interned at the CIA twice, not just one summer for two different summers, um, and then he had no he had not really shown any interest in journalism at that point. He didn't major in that or anything. He starts on a journalism career, goes overseas for a number of years in like Vietnam, and then he comes back and he rises very quickly. And now he's you know kind of at the apex of the corporate media machine. I mean, he has his own show on CNN. Um, and he has, you know, his family history. He's connected to some of the very wealthy families. I think it's the Vanderbilt family. His career also looks very much like a Mockingbird career. Um, again, I don't know for certain with these instances, but I, I, I sort of sketch out 10 or 12 of these. And together it shows a picture. There, there's another guy um, that I talk about, Ulf. His name is Ulf Okate. And he's a German, actually. He, um, and he was a journalist, he was an editor of one of the top German newspapers. And he came out in, when did he, I think it was like 2010s, early 2010s, and basically said that he was approached by the CIA and on a train, as a journalist training session, and was basically told what to cover and what not to cover. And he did it for a while and he finally resigned his post and said, I can't do this anymore. This is what's going on. And he, he specifically resigned because he saw that um, the intelligence agencies were manipulating the news narratives to push for war with China, or not China, with Russia, excuse me. And this was, you know, before this current war that's happening. This is, you know, 10 years ago almost. But it's really interesting. He said, I just couldn't in good conscience continue to edit that newspaper, seeing how it was being manipulated. So he wrote a book telling his whole story. It's called um, uh, The CIA... Uh, can't remember right now it has a different title in german but it was totally censored his book was was squashed in, in in german in germany and in the united states it came out and it's it's also you can't even find it you like go onto amazon for the book and it's it's just unavailable or there's one copy for like you know thirteen hundred dollars or something like that um but it'd be a very interesting book i'd love to get it i just don't have the thirteen hundred dollars to buy it um oh, so anyway, so those are just three. There's there's probably another uh, dozen stories that I talk about. Well, yeah. you mentioned the possibility of it still carrying on today, just possibly under you know a, a different project name or something like that. But I'm sure you've seen the mash the mashups during COVID, where they'll show over a dozen different anchors from from different news corporations and different news outlets saying the same exact thing or repeating the same story in the same way so that's kind of like a huge red flag there right i've seen a number of those yeah and and they're disturbing in a sense and then what you realize is it's because of the the pyramid nature of corporate media right where these stations are owned at, at a single point so what's happening, no doubt, is the narrative is being manufactured, manipulated, uh, and controlled at sort of corporate headquarters, and then it filters down. And so what's, what's particularly spooky is when they don't... So it's one thing if like you read that, okay, this is the narrative I'm supposed to talk about, we should all be scared about disinformation, and then you go on your, your local you know, Cincinnati news at 6 p.m. and you say, look, disinformation is kind of scary. It's a little more spooky when they do those mashups and they're all saying the exact same words. They're not just saying, I'm concerned about disinformation. It's like, disinformation is a very scary thing and we should all be very concerned. And literally like, yeah, I've seen like 20 stations or, or 100 stations across the country are giving you the exact same message. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really 
um, striking way. And, you know, if, if my book was a video and, you know, a movie instead of a book, I would do some of those montages in the book, but yeah, it's, it's very striking to see, okay, so this is clearly a manufactured narrative and, um, you know, and what's really interesting about these, about narrative management, narrative control is that one of the things I talk about in the book, as I get a little bit deeper into it later in the book is not just how they're manipulated, but how they're defended, right? So you have a narrative that will be created, but then they need to defend it against independent media. They need to defend it against people attacking it. So they have, I, I talk about two different uh, protectors of the narrative, and one is the fact checkers, and the other is what I call astroturf independent media, where there's this sort of like fake independent media that looks like independent media, but it's actually funded by the same organizations um, that are funding the corporate media. And so you have fact checkers that come out and they'll, they'll, fa- they'll, fact check things, but all they really do is they just look and say, well, is, does this match up with the narrative or not? And if it matches up with the narrative, they'll be like, oh yeah, this is true. If it doesn't match up with the narrative, they'll say false. They're not actually verifying the claim. And I, I look at like the Syria, the, the alleged uh, gas attacks in Syria. Um, I look at um, like a, a, a death that was, could have been from a vaccine injury, but you know, may not have been and how that was fact checked. Um, I look at a number of cases and, 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 really explore fact-checking and astroturf independent media to, to sort of paint the picture of, we're in a complex media world, right? It's not just there's one big guy lying and then there's all the rest of us figuring it out. It's a much more complex, diverse media ecosystem and it will continue to get that way. And so one of the things I, I did want to get into is because, because we can continue on those topics and they're fascinating, but I also did want to say that I also work on in the book, how, what I call media consciousness, which is becoming aware of all of this stuff, I think will often make us angry or confused or depressed or pissed off to realize that we're being lied to, but to actually push through that into what I call media consciousness, where we have awareness, not just of what we're seeing and hearing, but who's saying it. And when we have media consciousness and we can balance our media diet a little bit, I think that's really the path forward because what we don't want to we don't want to end up in this place of a divided, polarized society where, where one group of people has one set of stories and narratives and facts, and another group has a different one, and they're just, they think the other side is evil. And there's an element, there's definitely an agenda right now, you can see where that is being manipulated and pushed, where one side of the story, one side of the, what I call the red news is really blaming everything on the blue guys, the Democrats, and you have to believe these narratives and those guys are the evil ones. And then you go over here and the Blue News is doing the same thing. You really have to believe all of our narratives. And if you, if you believe them, you're an evil, bad person and you can be canceled and censored. And so one of the things that I want to talk about and I want to get into and that the book pushes is, is how we can move through this, realizing that independent media is an important part of our, how we inform ourselves and the corporate media is distorted and manipulated, but that by understanding that we can get back in touch with our own media consciousness, know what's important for our own lives and realize that people with a slightly different belief system or, or, or slightly different um, set of facts they're getting are not evil and bad. They just have maybe slightly different set of beliefs than we do. Yes, man. Very well said. Exactly. Uh, I want to 
I do want to get into a little bit more about your thoughts on where we're headed as a collective in this uh, independent media culture and what's happening there. I'm very excited about what's happening myself. There's so many different wonderful up-and-coming new broadcasters that I'm listening to now that I get really good information from, uh, so I'm very excited about that. But earlier you mentioned uh, different countries and how the propaganda works there, and if it's if it's even worse than ours, and, the, and this country you know, say China or Russia has worse propaganda than the United States. What do you think about that? Do you think that they're doing the same techniques and things that we're doing here to their people? I'm sure China is, but I don't know. It's a great question. Um, so I didn't get into this, but I spent uh, a bit of time in China. I, I went there right after college. Um, I had studied some Chinese in college and I wanted to travel out of the country. Everybody, all my friends had like gone abroad and, um, I went straight to China rather than going to like England or France where a lot of people go first. And it just totally blew my mind. It was an amazing experience. Um, I taught English and then I backpacked around the country and I, I, it just, I wrote my first book about it. It's called double happiness. It's about how powerful that experience was for me as a young person and, and just learning how to be happy, learning how to find my own way in life. So many important things I learned in China. Um, I love the country very much and we want nothing to do with their political system. It's absolutely abhorrent. We don't want, they never went through an enlightenment. They don't have a sense of individual rights in the way that we do. They don't have a sense of free speech in the way we do. They don't have a sense of freedom of the press or freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. They, they come from a different system and it's fine. It's a different one. Um, I, I certainly don't judge it. Chinese people are amazing. We just want nothing to do with their political system. So I want to get that out of the way. Um, yeah, so I, I write about in the book one of the experiences I had in China, um, and I start a chapter with it. And I was in China in, uh, it's quite a while ago, 2001, when, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a spy plane incident, went down over uh, Hainan Island off the coast of China. And I was there, so I was able to witness both sides of propaganda. And this is a long time ago. I didn't yet have much awareness about media manipulation yet. I was still a kid and I was still trying to figure things out in the world, but it was a little bit of an awakening for me. I was, my Chinese was decent. Um, I needed a dictionary, but I was able to sort of read through the headlines and some of the articles in the Chinese news. And the internet was just beginning to be a thing in China. And so I could go into like an internet cafe and it wasn't censored yet. China still was like, wow, the internet is such a great sign of development. And like, we love it and everybody should use it. It changed later. Um, so I was able to go and like, you know, type in www.cnn.com and get the American side of the propaganda and and really sort of compare them and see, oh, wow, it's really different. Like CNN is saying, you know, the Chinese, you know, they they I can't believe what they're so violent. And they, you know, they even sort of allege that the, the plane had maybe been shot down by the Chinese, um, blaming everything on the Chinese. The Chinese side was like, these Americans, why do they think they can fly spy planes right over our country? Like we would never shoot it down, but even if we had, we would have been justified. And that, you know, it's, it's just imperialism and it's abhorrent, right? So both sides had a grain of truth um, and you could sort of see it, but both sides, it was totally different stories. And I do write about in the book, I, it finally, like years later, I think I've been able to piece together what really happened. But what I wanted to say about um, the Chinese propaganda system. And what I learned is that the Chinese, and this is, I think, still true today, is that the Chinese propaganda system is very intense. It's extreme. It's absolute. But there's a key difference. Um, the Chinese people know that it's propaganda, right? Most people know. 
They watched it through the Cultural Revolution. They watched it through, you know, uh, the whole 70s and 80s and, and all of that. They know that the system is propaganda. And so it gives them a different mental state. And, and most of them, many Chinese people will not want to talk about politics because there's also sort of a taboo. When you get people to open up, they will tell you they know that the news is propaganda. Whereas in the United States, we have, their system is crude, absolute, heavy-handed. Our system is sophisticated, amazing. We call it the mighty Wurlitzer in the book because that was a CIA term for, for the propaganda system. I don't know if you know about the mighty Wurlitzer, we can talk about that. It's a sophisticated, many-pitched musical symphony right? And so you have the, the New York Times can lie to you while you feel smart, right? It actually makes you feel intelligent while you're being lied to. NPR is similar. Fox News can convince you that you're angry and they're angry about the same thing while they lie to you, right? It's the, it, there's many different pitches to it. And it's, so it's very sophisticated. I would say it's the most sophisticated propaganda engine ever created on earth. It's, it's kind of a marvel. But at the end of the day, they're doing the same thing. At the end of the day, they're doing the same thing. They are attempting to control the minds of the people of those countries. And so I actually refrain from saying one of them is better or worse than the other. Right. They're, of similar, uh, they're of similar magnitude in their control. Um, in the United States, you can get to independent media and that's what's changing. And, that's, and, and that is, as far as I can see, that's not changing in China. So we have the potential to break through this and to get back to sort of the, the constitutional vision of the freedom of the press and to have a freer system. But right now, if all you do is watch your CNN or listen to your NPR or, or watch your Fox, you are, you are not materially more aware of the truth than if you were in China um, with the mindset that they're lying to me, but you can't get access to other facts. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's that's insane that uh, we, we have such a what you would call sophisticated propaganda system. I don't know what's scarier to me, uh, but let's talk about how you feel about our future. I'm encouraged. I am definitely encouraged about all the new up and coming uh, independent media and journalists and content creators and the information that's coming out. And I think that those in, in control of the mainstream media have made so many mistakes that things are starting to fall apart for them. And it seems like uh, us as our these this new community that's up and coming is starting to build things from a ground level while this uh, big unsustainable system collapses before our eyes. Uh, so I'm, I'm encouraged about the future. More and more people are waking up to the corruption and everything going on behind the scenes every day. And I think that's going to continue. How do you feel about things? Yeah, I love that. I, I, I agree with you by and large. I think, um, you know, I have my moments where I'm, I'm cynical and skeptical. And when I see, you know, another person get censored who I respect and honor, and it, it does seem to happen mm. more often than I would like, certainly. But by and large, like I said, it's taking a step back and looking at the overall arch, the, or I should say the arc of where we're going. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely inspired. I think what we are, it's an exciting time to be alive. I think we're seeing... Um, a flowering of new knowledge and information like we saw in the Enlightenment, you know, and that that time birthed science. I mean, that was like that was the beginning of like starting to understand uh, how, you know, so many things. Right. Just just to begin with. Right. This the sort of cosmology of the universe and everything like that. But so many things. Right. What we call modern medicine, all of that. 
uh, modern philosophy, uh, art, music, all of it flourished when you had this, this great um, opening of information sharing. And right now we're in another phase of that where information sharing is, it's, it's dwarfing that enlightenment, right? Because now it's not just you know, some people can print books, whereas instead of just monks copying books in the monasteries or whatever in the churches, right now it's like you and I can have this conversation and we can upload it and a thousand people in Australia can watch it and 10,000 people in South Africa can watch it. And, you know, maybe a hundred thousand people in Europe can watch it or, or, or wherever, right? You know, China, although that's, it's not yet in China, but um, yeah, it's a fascinating time. And I think I think that we'll look back on this. And when I'm optimistic, we'll look back on this and say, wow, that was tough to go through the death throes of the corporate media behemoths as they sort of the dinosaurs finally fell to earth. Um, and we went through that environment of like, what do they call it? The alternative facts world and just everybody's in disinformation. Everybody's misinformation. Everybody's needs to be censored because our way is the only way to think about things. Um, I think we'll look back on it and say, yeah, that was a tough thing to go through. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. And I think also what's going to happen is we're going to see a rebirth of our awareness of what's going on in, on the world, you know, in the universe. I mean, we're going to be able to open our minds to a much, much deeper understanding of things. And so I'm excited to, to see where it goes. I don't know where it's going to go, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel very optimistic um, in those moments. But yeah, I, that's why I also wanted to, to give voice to, to the polarization that I see. And that, that is a danger, is, is the polarization as people are told, you know, by those dinosaurs that these people are evil, those people are evil. Yeah. Um, that's, that is certainly dangerous. They have a lot of power. And I, I think we would do ourselves a disservice not to, not to you know, realize that and acknowledge that. Um, but yeah, in the long term and even maybe the medium term, I think we're going to see a continuing flowering of independent media you keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. And um, yeah, I'm optimistic. I love it, man. Uh, let's close on this. You talk about a sustainable business model for independent media. Tell us a little bit about it. I'd love to hear this. Yeah. So this is something I felt I needed to get into towards the end of the book because it, it is a question, right? How do we actually, if we're going to tear down the sort of corporate ownership model of media or, or we're going to discredit it or we're going to watch it collapse of its own, out of its own weight, what can we do instead? So I have sort of three, three things I propose for this, and it's a tricky one. But I think the first is, um, and we're seeing some of it already emerge, right? You're seeing subscription-based independent media, right? So you're, actually, I should even say before that, in the Constitution's viewing of the free press, it isn't just journalists get the freedom to, to press, right? To print, to publish, in the sense that it isn't just professional orders that get to speak right? Everybody gets to speak. That's how democracy works. Everybody gets to print and publish, right? So I wanted to start by saying it, it, we don't have to only support professional journalists to have a free press. I have a day job. You know, I'm not paying the bills with this. And that's, that's fine. That doesn't make me less of, I don't get less protections under the constitution because of that. I get to put um, I get to publish my views, my thoughts as well. And so that's the first thing, like a sustainable model for the future of the media is going to involve and is going to include people who have a separate job and they're doing it on the side. And that's great. And that's a huge part of independent media. And I totally support that. So let's put that on one side. Now, how do we sustain professional journalism, right? How do we sustain people doing, you know, as a living, they're journalists, they're investigative journalists. And you do need that. You definitely need that. 
So one of them is the subscriber model. And we're seeing that definitely take flight over the last five years. You know, people with their Substack, people with their YouTube channel, people with their, um, you know, whatever it is, podcast. Subscribe on Rockfin, everyone. Yes. Give him five bucks, give him 10 bucks, make it a monthly contribution. If you like what's on this show, you know, support it. It doesn't mean you have to give him $10,000 and like, you know, do his next whatever number of mortgage payments it is or whatever, but like give five bucks or, you know, whatever you got, right? Um, Give five bucks, give 10 bucks a month. And we're seeing that happen all across the political spectrum. And it's, and it's great. I think it's, we should, we should get into a place where we can realize I want to support people and support people across your balanced media diet. Try not just to give the 10 people that you totally agree with all your money every month. Right. Mm. Um, if you've got, if you've got, a, if you only have two bucks a month that you can spare, you know, I'm going to skip a cup of coffee and I'm going to support a journalist. That's great. So that's one model. And I think that should continue. Great. There is a model also of advertising. Um, and I think we're seeing that as well. And that does carry some dangers. I think more than the two models I've talked so far, because advertising is one of the filters of systemic bias. So you start to open the door to systemic bias if you let in advertisers. But at that same time, I don't think we should throw that out. Advertising has a long history of supporting media in this country. Um, going way back to the original, the original times, people would put an ad in like some like little pamphlet. Oh, so, I just want to say, especially if the advertiser is a uh, is a uh, a self-grown or self-made company or independent themselves. So that's another absolutely. Answer. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely a place for that. Um, just with the caveat of like, you know, it should be disclosed that this advertiser, you know, if, if somebody wants to know, you should disclose your advertisers. Um, so that's that there's a sort of middle ground between those two, which is called the, like um, somebody was talking to me about this on a different podcast. It's called uh, what do they call it? Like like kind or something where people will will swap things. We're like, mm. I'll give you, you know, two boxes of apples and, you know, you'll give me like a subscription to your newsletter or something like that. Like sort of, it's not exactly barter, but it's sort of, you give what you can. I might not have money, but I, I can give you the thing that I'm doing with my life. I can do, I make belts, so I'll send you a leather belt. You know, there's, there's a little bit of a middle ground there between advertisers and, and the, the subscription models. So there's a place for that. But the third one I want to give voice to, which is it needs probably the most discussion because I think those are fairly self-explanatory, is this idea of the government supporting uh, a diverse media landscape. And journalism is the only profession other than politicians mentioned in the Constitution, right? Because there's the freedom of the press and you read all of the founders and the framers' writings. I mean, Thomas Jefferson literally said, if I had to choose between having a government or having newspapers, I would have newspapers, <laughs> you know, meaning like the power of the media to check those in power, to act as a watchdog, to, to provide the ideas, the diversity of ideas that democracy needs mm. is extraordinarily important. So I say that as a groundwork to, to make a suggestion with a little bit of uh, a little bit of hesitancy. We don't want the government controlling the media. That's that's the thing we have to be very careful about. But I think there's a place for a model in the sense that you have government can fund public education without getting involved in what is taught, right? That's very important. The government, imagine a system whereby maybe on your tax return, or if you don't do taxes, it's through some other system where you're given like $100 in coupons, right? It's like virtual coupons. And that's that $100, it's not cash you're going to get. 
It's money that you can hand out to the news organizations you like. You could give all $100 to Tony Bersunas because he's doing a fabulous job. Or you could give $1 to each of 100 different diverse groups that you all think should have a voice. And some of them you agree with, some of them you disagree with, some of them you, you know, is your uncle <laughs> or whatever, right? Or you give 50 bucks to your two favorites, right? But it's some kind of model where the government has no control over which media organizations you can give to. They have no say over that. All they do is they provide this money because, again, it's the, the power and the uh, importance of the press in our democracy is so important that it's worth it to have some type of a government model. So I think that third one is maybe has the most potential, but it also has the most pitfalls. So it needs the most uh, exploration. I just talk about it in my book a little bit. But those are some of the ideas that I, that I see uh, as workable. Excellent, man. I love it. We'll definitely have to speak with you again in the future, man. Uh, before you head out, let the audience know where they can find the book, your website, all the good stuff, if you have any social media, et cetera. Great. Yeah. So the book will be out at the end of October, uh, Red, White, and Blind. Uh, we talked about it. It's uh, redwhiteandblind.com. You can also go to tonybersunas.com, actually, where I have my, my blog. You'll always be able to get the latest there. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Substack are the places I do most of my social media. I don't do a lot of any of it, but um, I do post on Substack. So I would say subscribe there first. Um, it's the same if you subscribe to my blog or my Substack. They're basically the same thing. So tonybersunas.com, uh, Substack is redwhiteandblind.substack.com. Red, white, and blind out in October. Uh, love to hear your thoughts. And it's been great to be on the show, man. I'd love to come on again and have yeah. continue this conversation. For sure, man. There's a lot uh, deeper where we can go, so I'd love to speak with you again. And until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. We'll talk again tomorrow. See y'all all then.